Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Man, I'm still recovering from that third worship song. That was powerful and wonderful what the name of Jesus Christ means to me. I mean, I don't know what on earth I'd do without that name in my life. Amen? It was so good to sing about that. It was remarkable. And that is where we're at today as we continue our series in 1 Peter. It's been great seeing you all with your, with your journals. And um, if you're joining us online from another state or whatever, or even a country, maybe you can grab one. First and second Peter journals, we've been going through these. And you know, I got people coming to me going, Chris, I got more notes than this thing has pages. Do you understand how encouraging that is to a preacher to hear somebody say that? That is a complaint I like to hear. Hey, I'm trying to journal like crazy in my Bible, and I'm running out of pages. Well, get some inserts or go get another one. I don't know. It's great that you're engaging with the Word of God. If you have your scriptures with you, you want to be engaging and writing these things down as we continue to grow in our faith together because we desire in a world that is consistently speaking and thinking and dwelling on unremarkable things to come here or to join this each week and choose to be Remarkable. You know, how many of you uh, remember El Caminos? Some people are like, the kids in here are like, is that a lizard? <laughs> right? Is that, what, what is that, right? Um, El Camino. It's a vehicle, all right? And, and I wish this was a good story, but um, I think it's an intense story. And it's one I'd like to dwell on this morning, just a minute, to get our mindsets correct. He was a young man. He wasn't um, much more, I think, than 18 or 19, if I can recall the story correctly. He grew up as a pastor's son, and so he was used to um, having to do things and not even fully reasoning why and just struggle with that. And unfortunately, it led him to some rebellion in his life that ended up putting him in some situations Ah, that maybe he would regret later in life. And one decision he made was, I'm just going to try it. I was just going to try it in high school. He's just going to try it, see what it was like. And he, and he, and he tried some marijuana, and um, he kept going back to it. In fact, he got caught. He was actually kicked off his high school football team, and his football team was everything to him, and his life began to spiral. And because he felt rejected in one area, he went towards places that he didn't feel rejected. But one bad decision after another led to the first time he tried in a discouraged and defeated state, meth. It was given to him by an older cousin who had walked a path that was separate from what the family and relatives would have desired him. But he tried it, and he thought it wouldn't be a big deal. It just gonna, I'm just going to try some, maybe drown a little bit of the pain, and he tried it. And, and before long, he was addicted. And when you become addicted to something like that, and you don't have the money, it leads to other poor behavior. And if you're hiding it from someone, especially a father in ministry, it leads to more poor behavior. And he says, I recall the night I was in my El Camino, And I had a pan of ether in front of me. And I was preparing to take. And, and his buddy next to him, now if anybody knows how flammable that is, his buddy next to him lit up a cigarette. Poof, the car turned into an inferno. 
His buddy who was there for him, right? I mean, these people understand you, right? He got out of the car somehow and ran and left him. His body became inflamed. He forced himself out of the car. And I'm not going to get too graphic, but his skin being in almost a liquid state, he was left writhing in pain outside the vehicle, screaming out to God, knowing the faith he was raised in and where he was at, screaming to God, help. For four hours, that skin began to shrivel into the bones where he would need surgeries that would have to break the bones in order just for the skin to recover. 80% of his body completely destroyed. He survived it. And he goes back to that day and he thinks about the decisions that got him into that spot. And how maybe things be different if he had a different mindset. You know, so sadly, people look at the things of God. People read the Bible. People hear what you should and shouldn't do. And they look at God as someone who stares down on society and goes, it looks like somebody is having fun if, because they always hear the ifs and stuff. I shall squash their fun. That's literally how some people look at it. When God, this holy, 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 are you Lord God, almighty God, says, live like me. And you might be able to avoid some of the pitfalls of the consequences, not trials, consequences of a mindset that is focused on anything but the things of God. Today in our text, you're going to see, if you look at your journal or your scripture, a subtitle called, Called to be Holy. Called to be Holy. And we're going to, we're going to focus in Remarkable series in 1 Peter, verses 13 through 16. And we're going to see a holy God, but we're going to learn more about what Peter has to tell these people who too are facing very difficult times. And I pray today, I'm going to give you a view of holiness that is not abstract, but it's something that you'll desire to walk out of here today going, you know what? I can't do a lot, but I could do that. I could try to pursue that. Because heaven forbid, somebody continues to make decisions. I don't know who's listening today. And maybe I, you turned this on and you heard me bring that up and you went, oh my word. This is for me. Stay, stay with us today. Because I actually think this is for everybody who is considering a lifestyle focused on the things of the world instead of focused on the things that the holy God of the universe who desperately loves you wants you to focus on. Let's learn from Peter today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, use our text today to inspire us to be not just different, not, not, not just convicted, not, not just 
standing on something. But may we use this text today to inspire us to be remarkable, to live our lives in such a way that people go, what's different about you? I got to know. And then we can give the hope that is within us. Lord, we desire this and we pray this. For Lord, it seems that there are people who are walking towards the thing of God. And there are people who are walking away from the things of God. Lord, if there's anybody in here today or listening today that is walking away from the things of God, I pray that right now you'd tap them on their shoulder and you'd remind them, listen, listen to this. This is truth from the word of God that may inspire them not to find themselves in an inferno. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, you know what? They say there's two kinds of people in this world. And, and, and sometimes just the smallest things make one of us distinct from someone else. So I have some images today. So if you're listening on a podcast, I'm sorry, you're going to have to imagine it or find our sermon slides under our app. But I have some images today, and they're going to, they're going to separate people in this room, okay? Here we go. Here's the first one. Which are you? Which one are you? There's two kinds of people in this earth. I've got an image of email boxes. One has 13,678 messages unlooked at, and the other is what's called in business world inbox zero. Which one are you? I mean, my word, people, really check your messages. I never, I, I must have missed that. Yeah, of course you missed it. <laughs> well, 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 let's get a little more. Let's get a little more. Let's dive in here a little bit more. There's two kinds of people when they go to Five Guys and eat some fries. There's two kinds of people. There's those who squish their ketchup all over their fries, and there's those who like it on the side. Which one are you? We're all different. We're all different. What, 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 what? Okay, moms, let me talk to moms. Which one are you, mom? What does the lunchbox look like? Are you cutting that bread straight down the middle, or are you getting a little fancy and going on the angle? Everybody's different. Everybody's different. Uh, how about, how do you look at a menu, okay? Wh which are you? Do you see that? you <laughs> see that? Which one are you? There are some people who are looking only at the food. Woohoo! And there's some people who are only looking at the prices, right? Which one are you? There's two kinds of people in this world. How do you go at your chocolate? Any chocolate lovers? Are you pull one square off a time or are you going right in? Which are you? For some reason, I always felt if I went one square at a time, it would last longer. I don't know why I felt that, but, but that was kind of how I, I attacked it. How about, let's get personal. How about in the mornings? Which one are you? Huh? Are you one alarm or are you 7 o'clock, 7.25? I like this. And then 10 minutes the second time, 7.35. You got all sorts of alarms on your cell phone. Which one are you? See, my bride and I are very different. And I didn't know this until we were married and we were spending the night together and we'd wake up in the morning and my wife, the alarm goes off. Beep, beep, beep. And she just sits up and walks to the kitchen. No rollover, no like, oh, just boop, up. 
You ask, you ask my kids to this day, it's like, wow, mom, that's kind of creepy. Just like she rises out and gets up, you know? And, and, and she's just up. She's like, what? The alarm goes off? I'm up. I'm like the alarm. Oh, why? Why, Lord? And then I have one to catch me if I, if I go through too many. There's two kinds of people. Let's get real serious. <laughs> what? Let's get real serious here. Man, I had people approach me after the first service on this one. Which way is your toilet paper on the roll? Is it coming off the front or coming off the back? I had a mother of nine come up to me after the service. Mother of nine, bless her heart. And she said, I'm just happy if it's on the roll. <laughs> There's two kinds of people in this world. People who have longer ring fingers and people who have longer index fingers. Which are you? You weirdos. If, you're in, if your ring finger's longer, you need so much prayer. Have you ever read what that means for you? No, I'm kidding. I, I have no idea. I have no idea, but it's true. There are some people with longer ring fingers and longer index fingers. And if you're looking at your hand right now, I want you thinking, man, I'm kind of unique. And I didn't even realize this. And all those things are fun. And all those things do make us unique. But see, it was, an, it, was a, it was a book I was reading as I was working through apologetics a couple years back. And I was really trying to increase in my ability to speak to people about my faith. That I was led to a book, just a dynamic little book, called How to Share Jesus Without Fear. And there was a line in there, there was a quote in there, and it stuck with me and has kind of driven me in a lot of ways to change my mindset about sharing my faith while I'm alive here on this earth. And here it was, it's this. It's by William Fay. He says, there are two types of people, those who talk to the lost and those who talk about the lost. One more time. There are two types of people. Though there are those who people who talk to the lost. They actually are talking to the lost about their salvation. And then there's those who just sit around and talk about what's wrong with the lost. And that mm, boom. Which are you, Chris? Are you going to be somebody who's talking about the world and what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with people and what's wrong with this and they're this and they're this and this? Or are you going to actually talk to them? Well, how, how can I get there? You're going to have to change your mindset because our mindset sometimes is like, I'm different from them. Instead, we need to set our mindset towards, I have something they desperately need. Yet William Fay and his co-author Ralph Hodge, they both share in this book that people aren't sharing their faith. They just aren't. There are some, but for most believers, they aren't sharing their faith and they have excuses and they have a lot of excuses. But he said, if, there, if, there, if there's no preacher, scripture says, if nobody's going to tell them, how can they hear if nobody tells them? And he goes on to challenge the reader to think through the sin of silence. That's powerful. He says, you'll hear reasons. He, he lists six. I'm afraid to be rejected. 
I mean, at the heart of it, I don't want rejection. I'm afraid of what people will think. I'm afraid I will lose relationships. I'm afraid I do not know enough. I'm afraid I am not allowed to share. I'm afraid I don't really know how. Man, I was thinking through this young man burning and for four hours in the side of his car. And I was thinking about this guy who called him a friend who just left him. And I thought, how, how much do you got to not care about somebody to leave them just burning? And then I was thinking through what William Fay says about believers not sharing their faith. And I thought, how much do you have to not care about the lost to not even try to help? I mean, how much do you not care? And see, unfortunately, believers, as fear mounts, we bubble up even more. I mean, how many people have found themselves inside such a little bubble they don't even have close friendships who don't know the Lord? And I mean, there can be wisdom to that, but at the same time, is there anyone that you need to share the gospel with? Because believer, if you're reading the Bible and you believe there's a heaven coming with a great inheritance that Peter tells us about, there's also very clearly in scripture a hell with a blazing fire that goes for eternity. And we have a message. If we truly care, we need to share it. So the people aren't left burning by the lack of our care. We can't control whether people come to Christ, but we can control whether we make it a point in our life to actually share our faith. I can't imagine being burned. I know some of you have actually experienced that in certain levels, but to think that 80% of this young man's body at the age of 19 was fried You can understand the fear of Christians living in the time of Nero, Caesar Nero, who has built Circus Maximus to to mock Christians and kill them as sport. But not only on top of that, he was having stakes put up throughout the city and he was burning people alive. I mean, what if you had the fear of burning alive? Many of you are having conversations based on the fears you have of what could happen to you because of your faith and some of the religious freedoms you're afraid you'll lose in the future. Imagine if one of your fears was being burned alive. How many conversations during that time period is the church that Peter is writing to talking about that? Did you hear about so-and-so? He was burned. He was put, I saw his body. I mean, it's disturbing the weight that these young Christians were feeling as Peter writes to them. And into that world, he told them, hey, this is me, this is Peter, I'm a witness of Christ. And he gave them a remarkable hope, didn't he? Based on his witness, he says, you have an identity in Christ and you have a living hope based on an inheritance. And he challenged them to live in such a way. And we marked, knowing you are divinely selected, despite those times you get rejected. Oh, you live with a remarkable hope that people just have to ask about. And Peter says, you have this hope, but he also says, you have a joy based on a realization that your trials have a purpose. You have a motivation that he's building your endurance and you have an expectation you will be rewarded for all suffering precedes exaltation. When children of God rejoice when they suffer, despite the rewards they have yet to discover, they have remarkable joy. 
And then Peter goes into our text today and he says, therefore, therefore, it's a powerful word. Whenever you see it, I want you to ask, I wonder what that's there for. Whenever you see therefore, it's hearkening back to something. Based on your hope, based on your joy, I want you to prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you see Christ, you're going to have grace that's brought to you. And I want you to lock in on that. I want you to get focused. Are there any coaches in the room? Do you know the difference between an athlete who is focused and an athlete who is not focused? A any, any, any musical trainers in this room? Do you know the difference between a young apprentice who is focused and one who is not focused? Absolutely. It's a night and day difference. And Peter says, can I talk to all believers? There's a difference between one who is focused and one who is not focused. And he refers to this, and I'm going to call the whole text today, having a remarkable mindset. A mind that is set on living a holy life. Well, I, I, I mean, I'm curious. In fact, a mindset that's so set on living a holy life that it shares the gospel sometimes without even saying a word. Did you know you can share the gospel by what you don't do? Did you know you can share the gospel by what you choose to go to? See, people are watching all the time. My, my dad never had to teach me that church was important in our house. How? Why not? Because he got up every morning. Actually, he went almost every day. I didn't have to learn. He didn't have to have a message. I want to tell you about church being important. He lived it. And because he lived it, it became important to me even when I was having mindsets that weren't of the things of God. And, and Peter's talking today about living in such a way where one commentator says, it's like he wants us to pull ourselves together and get focused. Have you ever said, hey, come on, man, get focused. Come on, sweetheart, get focused on this. We gotta get focused on our academics this marking period. Last marking period, we were sloppy. This marking period, we gotta get focused. Our mindset plays a massive role in our focus. But here's what's good. Go back to that verse, therefore, real quick for me, would you? I want you to see something that, that, that's somewhat remarkable. When we prepare our minds for action and being sober spirit, we're basing it on the hope and we're basing it on the joy that Peter has established. So therefore, is coming after grace has been given. God has given us joy. He has given us hope. And now comes commands. In fact, there's three commands we're going to look at in there. And these commands are going to kind of lead us and guide us through the text, and I'm going to point out six commands that Peter gives for Christians who are living during difficult times in ways they can live with a mindset towards holiness, remarkable mindset. You know, I've liked to dabble. When I put up remarkable mindset for me now, I went back there. I like to dabble 
in um, interior design. And anybody who knows me knows I do a little bit more than dabble. I, I really enjoy it, okay? And what, what many don't know is I, I came from a family where artistry is all a part of our family. And uh, my dad was a commercial artist, a cartoonist. And so art was all around me all the time. And one of my passions wasn't just uh, art, art, but turning art into design. And, and part of that was a, a passion to want to become an architect. And in fact, I was studying to be an architect. I was applying to architectural schools when the Lord kind of grabbed my collar and said, we're going this way. But I've always had a passion for it. And I've always enjoyed it. And I've always appreciated it. And, and I want to teach a mindset that's focused on holiness from an interior designer's viewpoint. And here's why I want to do that. Growing up, I would hear about, we need to be holy. And I'd be like, um, okay, uh, sinless? Yes, there's an aspect of sinless. Well, how can I be sinless if I'm a sinful person? Well, as a child of God, when I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior, he tells me I am forgiven, right? All my past, present, and future sins are forgiven. And I'm separated from them as far as the east is from the west. I am forgiven as a child of God. But I'm told to confess my sin because he's faithful and righteous to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So there's an aspect to my holiness where I'm to be confessing my sin. What's the difference? Well, forgiveness is position. I stand forgiven. See, I've got children. They all bear my last name, at least for now. And they will always have my last name. When my kids get jerseys and they put them on, it has my last name on it. Why? Because they're positionally my children. But when they do something that I disagree with or don't like, there is a relationship problem. And until confession or conversation or I'm sorry or hey, let's get this right, there's a distance there. And I know that part of holiness is not forgiveness in as much as I know I'm positionally a child of God forever. It's going, God, I want to get right with you because I've been doing some things that I know you don't approve of. And having a mindset fixed towards that because God is sinless. But you know what? God is also unique and distinct. That's the other aspect of holiness. And if I'm going to have a mindset of living a life that's unique and distinct from others, I need to build my life around something. And what a designer would tell you is, ah, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about designing a room around a focal point. Let me give you an illustration. I got a picture up here of a focal point, okay? Now, clearly, this interior designer wanted to make the focal point the fireplace. And so the homeowner had a painting that they just loved, this, this warm blue painting. Now, anybody who knows anything about interior design knows how important colors are, right? There are colors that, that speak towards growth. If you, want to, if you want growth, like in a nursery or in like a kid's place, you get some greens in there, right? If you want to calm people down, you do warm blues. You're going to walk into a doctor's office, you're going to see warm, calming blues usually. You say, is that really that important? Okay, have you ever walked into a doctor's office that's entirely red? You'd be like, what is going on in here? Because red is intense. Red is a marketing color. Red is, here I am. 
Yellow is enthusiastic. Yellow is excited all the time like a daisy flower. But there are certain colors that calm. This homeowner wanted a calming room. And so they designed the entire room around the focal point. You can barely see the chandelier because the chandelier was selected to work so intricately with that centerpiece that it even flows with the branches in that piece. It, it flows throughout the room. It, it makes the selection of the chairs very easy. Let's work to bring the attention to our focal point. It helps them paint the walls behind, behind the bookshelves. When you walk into a room that the designer has put tons of effort into, they've done so because they've designed it around an inspirational focal point. I want you to think about holiness that way. Because the believer who has a mindset that is remarkable as they go through life, they have a focal point, and it's Jesus Christ. And everything they do, say, think, places they go, people they engage with, and opportunities they have, their desire is to build that around their focal point. Peter is this way. He says this, therefore, therefore, prepare your minds for action. He, he says, I want you now to have this focal point of holiness, and I want you to prepare your minds for action. Now, now could you imagine with me that underneath all these English words, you saw these Greek words, okay? So when I say underneath that word, there's a Greek word, I want you to just use your imagination, okay? Stay with me just for a minute. I want you to get into just one more level of Bible study, and that is going back to the Greek, which the New Testament is written in, and where we get this translation into English. He says, preparing your minds for action. Greek words have tenses, Okay, um, verb tense, noun tense, all, all sorts of tenses, present tense, past tense, they have tenses. And, and the word prepare your minds for action is actually written as an aorist imperative, which means prepare your minds for action. It means without delay. And so it would be great to write even in, in, your, in your Bibles or your journals, right above that, immediately. Okay, this is where the power of knowing the layer underneath the text brings it life. Therefore, immediately prepare your minds for action. You know what? Someday I was thinking about living for God. No, Peter's not good with that. You know what? I was thinking next at bat coach, I was thinking about concentrating. No, this one. Peter's going, you can't handle life unless you are immediately preparing your minds for action. The idea carries the idea of uh, girding up your loins. And in, the, in, the, in those times when Peter wrote, they, they would wear these clothes that would often, even men had one long dress-like clothes. And in order to run or to be more athletic, they would gird up their loins. They'd pull up their, their robe, if you will. They'd tuck it and stick it in their belt so that they were more active. Peter's saying, gird up your loins. Immediately prepare your minds for action. Every good Interior designer knows the importance of preparation. They walk into a room like this and they go, what does the homeowner desire? Oh, they want more windows in this. They're hoping to bring more light into it. They began to think through the scope of the project because interior designers understand the impact of the scope and how much is it gonna cost. They start thinking through budget, 
They, they start thinking through lining up contractors who will be able to do the job. Now you're getting into general contractor and designing. There's all sorts of aspects to design. And so when somebody wants to renovate something, somebody's got to cast a vision. Somebody's got to be able to build a vision. Somebody's got to be able to pay for the vision. And somebody's got to be able to finish the vision. But in order to do it, somebody's got to stand there in that room and go, you know what? I've been talking about this project for the last 10 years. We're going to do it. Oh, like when? Next year? No. We are going to prepare our minds for action. We are starting this project. Peter goes, now we're talking. That's how holiness begins. And so our first command is prepare your minds immediately for action. Child of God, are you preparing yourself each morning to be unique? Or are you just getting up? Peter says, unacceptable. We have to get up prepared. It's a real smart idea for Peter probably to open our word in the morning, thinking through all the scope of the day that you have in front of you, what you would like to accomplish, the project you'd like to see finished, and whether you're going to do it. It is amazing just for me. I got, I got a few things on my plate. You like, you're probably just like me, right? When I wake up with my mind prepared for action versus just waking up, I'm a totally different person. I am like a totally, and I accomplish so much more that day when I am ready. Peter goes, that's where we need to be. But he's got a second command. Look at this. And being sober-minded. Now, the idea here is to not be drunk and stumbling around, but to be fully controlled in our minds. If we're going to live holy lives, we need to, one, prepare our minds for action immediately, but two, be sober-minded. And this is written in present tense. Which means it carries this idea. Always. What? Always sober-minded. Always in full control of all of your mental resources. That's what Peter's call is. If you lose control of your mental resources, you're going to get into worry. You're going to get into fear. If you lose control of your mental resources, you're going to get into arrogance. You're going to get into pride. If you lose control of your mental resources, you're going to get into things that aren't supposed to be there. And so we are to always be sober-minded. You mean even on Saturday nights, always be sober-minded. Any interior designer knows the impact of preparation, but they also know the impact of restraint. Take a look at this picture. This is a powerful painting, right? It takes over the room. And so interior designer who has a homeowner who wishes to draw all the attention to that painting knows that everything they design around it should demonstrate restraint and not compete with it. For the goal is for everyone to be drawing their attention to the focal point, this very um, a wild piece of art. And so you don't go with a wild couch, you go with a very plain couch. You, if you're going to do some end tables, you go glass. You do things that don't draw attention away from the painting. Anything that distracts from the painting, anything that doesn't give attention to the painting, needs to be put away and restrained from. Peter's saying, there you go. Are we asking ourselves, am I distracting people from Christ in the way I'm living? Am I doing something that's distracting me from the painting? 
I remember listening to one of my mentors coaching a young man who goes, I, I really like this girl. I just, I just don't know if she's one. He said, well, is she drawing you closer to Christ or further away? Further away. Well, then you know she's not the one. Well, can I just change it? Well, it depends how you're going to live in the focal point. There's a power of restraint. We don't want to compete with the one who's be giving the attention. And so he says, therefore... Preparing your minds for action, that, that was our first command. And being sober spirit, that's our second command. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, now this is interesting. The, the tenses here carry an idea of an anticipation of the grace you're getting that you're fixed on knowing it's going to happen, not wondering. And so it's written... Now, stay with me. It's written in what's called first command. You're like, what? We just went into seminary. Just stay here. Stay here. I think you'll find this interesting. When something's written in first command, even though it appears third in the list, it actually is the dominant command of the text. So it's written in first command, which means it's decisive. Okay? It's a decisive volunteer decision. And because it takes first command, it is actually imperative over these two. If you don't set your hope, you're not going to be able to prepare your mind, and you're not going to be able to be sober-minded because you haven't set your hope. What's the point? Any interior designer knows the importance of placement. Let's take this painting, for example, that you see. It's a painting of a driveway. Hey, you know, can you see it? Like, you might look at that and go, oh, what a cool room. They have a painting of a driveway with a car's taillights. If I pulled that painting off and brought it, we go, look at this. And you'd be like, sweetheart, can we get a painting of our driveway? It's awesome. No. What makes it amazing? This designer found a wavy couch that nobody else has ever seen and took it and placed it under the painting. And when you understand in interior design the power of placement, you can make something that's ordinary extraordinary just because of where it's placed. Do you believe God can do that with you? See, the ultimate designer God can teach us through even design elements we understand the power of placement. You know, I'll prove it even more. There are three square, very boring blue pieces of artwork on the wall. There's nothing great about them, but a designer stood back from the stairwell and had them lined up exactly with the railing. And that placement makes it intentional and brings attention to the railing for your eye. An interior designer understands the power of placement, especially extremely unique objects. Hopefully you're following Therefore, preparing your minds immediately for action and always being sober-minded, decisively set your hope on the full grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's going to take remarkable focal points. It's going to take remarkable preparation with remarkable restraint and remarkable placement because you've been called to remarkable vision. You are God everywhere you go. You're God when you wake up. You want to be God in the shower. You want to be God at the breakfast table. You want to be God in the car because you represent him. He's your focal point. 
And your desire is to draw all the attention to him throughout your day. And it changes the way you behave. It changes the way you talk. And it changes the way you clarify things with people that talk to you about him. Get your minds in gear. He continues, because you are, look at this, obedient children. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of the former ignorance. Do not be conformed. I, I like this as obedient children. Peter is such a kind writer. Th this can refer to because you are. Isn't that kind? Peter is such a calm shepherd. I mean, this is the toughest guy ever really in, in scripture. Peter would go at Roman cohorts with one knife, right? And he's like, guys, you're obedient children. And what's interesting about this word obedient, it means to hear under. Isn't that interesting? It, it literally means to hear under. Let me, let me act that out for a minute. Any, anybody, anybody knows business um, body language? I'm gonna, I'm gonna inform you on some things. Maybe I'll, I'll teach you for your next interview, okay? There's a difference between hearing under and hearing over, okay? Um, for example, if someone is in the room and they're trying to get everybody to talk, they'll sit. If they're not trying to get everybody to talk, they'll lean forward or even stand. Maybe you're a small group leader and you go, I don't know why nobody talks in my small group. Well, maybe you start like this. Okay, I want to get some feedback from all of you, all right? Like, um, give me some feedback in this room, okay? Maybe you go first or something like this. Everybody's like... Right? But when you do this, right? When you do this, you go, hey, I'd love to just, let's all talk about this. Let's all, I'm, I'm going to, let's all talk about it. Look what I did. I got under. You're almost hearing under visibly in your body language, right? I mean, if you're doing an interview and you're sitting back versus sitting forward, there's an aggressive versus listening aspect. Scripture, Peter's saying, I want you to hear under this because there's going to be a temptation to not do this. I want you to not be conformed, to be fashioned after the passions of your former ignorance. Now we know he's talking about Gentile believers because they didn't know any better. Don't be fashioned after that. You got to be careful because this world's going to suck you in. It's going to get you believe in that. If you follow things of the Bible, you're going to miss out, that you're not going to have things in your life. And any interior designer knows this. Conformity is a great design tool. This homeowner, they wanted everything to change in the room based on a painting they picked out to put on their fireplace. And so they wanted the interior designer to come into this room and make the whole room work around that art piece. And so the designer took a, a path. Anything that doesn't defer its attention to the center has to be taken from the room and replaced with things that refer back to the center of the room. Even bringing in the slight purples into the flower on the table, everything was in deference to the main part of the room. It's kind of like everything in the room did not look out for their own interests, but rather the interests of the one who wanted them looking out for others. Everything went together, and anything that didn't submit to that ultimate focal point, the interior designer said, I got to get rid of. Here's the fifth one. But as he has called you to be holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Do you see that? The one who's called you to be set apart, the one who's called you to be unique, is asking you, to reflect him in your daily life. 
Interior designers know the power of reflection. In, in, in this room, the homeowner wanted their hallway to appear larger. And so the interior designer, leveraging mirrors, placed them around the room and enabled this room to not only feel larger, but allowed the painting to be felt throughout the hallway that the homeowner had selected. And so you see this, and, and you have mirrors in the ceiling. I don't know if I'd suggest that, but mirrors in the ceiling and, and mirrors on the side. And so now when I walk down the hall, I see the painting in every aspect of this room because an interior, they know the power of reflection. Any, any, I know we got some hobby guys in here. Some of you are model railroad guys, all right? Or girls, maybe there's a male model. You know the power of mirrors on a model railroad. It makes that bigger feel, this little miniature thing feel huge. Reflections, interior designers know that reflections make things that are common, uncommon. They were enabling, with reflection, to put a painting on three walls throughout a room. Man, there's remarkable vision to someone leading a life of holiness and pointing back to a focal point. And there's remarkable mission. I'm called to be holy. I'm called to represent Jesus Christ on earth. That's a big deal that I shouldn't be taking lightly. And he finishes, since it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. Your goal is that when people see you, they see me. And so the more sinless a life you lead, the more they see me. The more you're unique and set apart because of what you choose to do or not do or say or not say, the more they see me. And the more I defer to my heavenly father, the more I see him. And that's the most powerful interior design rule in the world. And what is it? The impact of lighting. Lighting does everything. In this piece, you can see that they took leaves pulled them off the wall to expose the shadows of the leaves on the wall, making a very ordinary piece of art expand. Lighting can draw attention to a piece of art. Lighting can draw attention to an area. It can also, not lighting something, can draw attention away from it. If you don't understand the power of lighting, I don't care how great an interior designer you are, if there's no lights in the room, no one cares. You gotta have lighting. Lighting is so powerful. And that's why the designer of the universe, he says, I want you to be like me. So, so do this. Let your light so shine before all men that they might see your good works and glorify you. No, that's not the goal. Glorify me. And so if I'm the God of this world, I have to go out of my way to not let us believers do that. And so he attacks us, and he wants us living the selfie life that he has given to this world, making everything about you, making everything about what you want, making every decision about whether it was fun for you or not. And when we follow the God of this world, we don't live lives of holiness. 
if we want to live a holy life, it's not going to be easy. It's a life of, come on, man, focus right now. I got a vision for you, and it's going to be excellence. And it's going to take some mission. Here's what you got to do. And it's going to take some strategy. And when you put all those remarkable aspects of the designing God who calls us to represent him into a room, you get to see things that otherwise you wouldn't see. This designer was credited with the task of making this back wall more glass. The, the homeowner wanted accordion glass panels, if you've ever seen them. They wanted to expose this patio area. They had a desire for a bedroom over here, and, and, and they wanted to bring this all together, so the preparation was there. They had to design it with restraint so that it didn't compete with it. They had to place the things in the correct place. They had to defer everything to these mirrors, so the interior designer decided to design everything in rectangle form. They they wanted to reflect it, and they wanted to provide lighting that flew together with the whole project, and it went from this to this. Do you like before and afters? Same room. And when you look at that, you go, wow. Designers are awesome. And they are. But I know a more awesome designer. And he says, design your life around me because I am holy, so you be holy. And when you do that, oh man, it's gonna be great. You'll be holy and people will see it. It's gonna take mission, vision, and strategy, people, in First Peter's audience. It's gonna take some focus. But with that effort, you'll reap incredible rewards. Why are people silent about their faith? William Faith says, you just notice there's a lack of an evangelistic effort in so many believers. He says there's a lack of unbelieving friends. They don't even surround themselves anymore at all with people who don't know the Lord. There's a lack of love for the lost. They talk about the lost and not to the lost. There's a lack of serving joyfully. There's a lack of emotion in worship. Is that not important? Even God says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. There's a lack of time in scripture. There's a lack of daily prayer. And I'm going to bet there's a lack of these things in the life that looks at their spiritual life as la-di-da-di-da. You know, I, I tend to be a little driven and a little focused towards goal accomplishment. How dare I put more into my accomplishments than I do into my spiritual life? Do I have a mission and vision and strategy for my evangelistic effort? Or am I just waking up in the morning? Do I have a mission, vision, and strategy to incorporate some people I know who don't know Christ in my life because I don't want to see them in an inferno? Am I talking about the lost or am I talking to the lost? What is going to be my mission, vision, and strategy for that? And you know what William Faith, he says, I've developed some questions that help me share gospel with people. He's, a, he's an old soul with an evangelistic car. He says, I ask people, do you have any kind of spiritual beliefs? You know what else I do? He says, I say, to you, who is Jesus Christ? These are his share questions. He's got five. He says, do you believe in heaven and hell? If you died, do you know where you would go? 
Have you ever answered that question? There's a stat out there. 10 out of 10 people die. I would know the answer to that one. If you were believing, if what you were believing might not be true, would you want to know? And you say, oh, I do feel a call. I do want to share the gospel more, but I'm just not this evangelist. I'm not really good with my words. And, and I do have some of those fears at the beginning. And I think we all do. And so as you walk out of here today, can I give you a path for evangelism where you might not even have to talk this week? You say, oh, I'm listening. You might not even have to talk. It's amazing. Because you're shocked how much of a testimony you can have by just not doing things or doing things that people see. But it's going to take you being like one person versus another because there's two kinds of people in this world. Dr. Tim Elmore in his leadership principle book, he says there's thermostats and there's thermometers. Thermometers, you know what they do? They reflect the temperature of the room. They walk into a room and they become like everybody else in the room. Teenager, have you ever struggled with that? Adults, have you struggled with that? Guys at workplace, are you this godly guy and then all the guys get around and all of a sudden your mouth changes, your attitude changes, your ethics change, everything? That's a thermometer. You know what a thermostat does? It walks into the room and it sets the temperature. Peter is telling believers, when you walk in the room, something walks in the room. What, what, what? Well, when you walk in the room, preparation just walked in the room. You didn't just happen into this room. You have a mission, vision, and strategy for how you're going to behave, how you're going to talk, how you're going to act, and what you hope to accomplish when you walk in the room. And you set the temperature. When a child of God walks in a room, Peter says, preparation just walked into the room to share the love of Christ in our behavior. When a believer walks in the room, restraint walks in the room. I could say that, but it's probably not fitting for the occasion. I could do that, but I'm not sure it's the best idea for the goal I have. Restraint says, I don't want to do anything that will draw people away from the focal point of my life. So, Lord, may my behavior today not be a poor distraction from the focal point of my life. And they demonstrate restraint in their words, in their actions, in their efforts. Is there anything where you need to kind of restrain yourself from doing in order to not draw the attention away from the painting? When a believer walks in the room, placement walks in a room. Young people out there, you may find yourself, let me talk to college students for just a minute when you get a little more extra freedom. You may find yourself in a dorm room or at a house or a party or something where you thought, oh, just a fun place to go, and the Holy Spirit taps on your shoulder and goes, this is not a place for us to be at. I can't tell them how many times I've counseled. Sometimes you are just guilty by association, let alone whether you did it yourself. There are times we know this, that when a believer walks in a room, they got to understand, is this a room that I should be in? Because part of holiness is staying away from the things we know we're not supposed to be at. Yeah, but people are going to call me weird. So, 
Whose approval do you care more about? Your heavenly father's? Or some kid who might just run away from the car? I want to be by the one who will never leave my side, ever. When a believer walks in a room, deference walks in a room. Believers have such a remarkable submission to their heavenly father that they submit to what the word of God says, even if the world doesn't like what the word of God says. And boy, get ready for that one if you haven't had to deal with it already. And you're going to have to make a decision. Do I submit to the word of God or do I submit to the opinions of men? Deference. The Bible tells me not to do it because the heavenly father wrote it who loves me dearly. Reflection. When a believer walks in a room, their goal is to reflect Christ. And so... They try to stay away from language coming out their mouth that would be a poor reflection of him. They try to stay away from language and behavior that would be a poor reflection of him. They try to not treat people in such a way that's demeaning and degrading and awful and cruel because they don't want to be a poor reflection. They understand that. They have a massive calling in their life and they have a mission, vision, and strategy. When I walk in this room, I should be reflecting Christ. It's not because I'm a pastor. It's not because of that. It's because when I walk in this room, if I behave in a certain way that doesn't reflect the focal point of my life well, I'm not choosing holiness. And then finally, may I shine. May I shine. Those are six things that take zero talent, zero evangelistic talent. It's just living a life on purpose with a mind that is set on doing the things of God and choosing holiness to be unique for him. Because this world may make fun of you, you might think you're missing out. But if you ask Brad in that El Camino that day, if this world has something to offer, if you think, if you asked him, how, how if you follow the things that his dad was speaking and, and other people are living out of his life, whether it's a bad idea or not, he'd tell you, listen to the Lord when he tells you to stay away from some of these things. He's not up in heaven going, I'm going to squash your fun. He's going, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to protect you. So listen to me. My commands are protective. And they also bring incredible hope and joy, even in suffering. This young man has gone on to share his testimony and his life of, and to multiple substance abuse audiences and saying, I was not a hopeless case. And he fought and he continued through all his surgeries. And he met in, a, a, he went to a, a, a group of people who have also been burned. And there was a girl in the group. She was sitting in a chemist lab, 17 year old girl. She says, all I ever cared about was being pretty and having the guys like me and fitting in. And the teacher's chemistry project exploded and a fireball shot across the classroom and hit her right in the face and burned her face. 
And she went to this, not knowing when it would happen. She didn't know it. She didn't do anything. Brad says, I did something. I mean, I put myself in that car. I had the meth in front of me. I had the explosion happen, but she did nothing. And they began talking at that counseling sessions for burn victims. And they ended up getting married. And they got one cute little guy, don't they? One really cute little guy. And he goes on to share with people everywhere that being unique, as he is very unique, having people judge you or even avoid you for the way you behave when it's centered around the focal point, you'll hear in his testimony, it's a life worth living. And Peter's saying, with the right mindset, despite the suffering you might have occurred, despite even sometimes the consequences of decisions you've made, with the right mindset, you can be what? Remarkable. Remarkable. Choosing to set our minds on being unique despite the opinions, judgments, and avoidance we might receive is remarkable. Child of God, can I encourage you this week to be a thermostat instead of a thermometer? Can I encourage you to think through Jesus being the focal point of everything you do? And may I encourage you to design your entire life with him as the center of it. Anything that doesn't submit to his will has got to go. Any music, any videos, it's got to go. Why? Because he doesn't want me to have fun? No, because he knows what's best for me. Anything that doesn't accurately reflect him has got to stop coming out of my mouth. Why? Because I'm afraid of what people say? No, because I'm a reflection of Jesus Christ. That is the heartbeat of holiness. God's kids designing their life after the greatest designer this world has ever seen. He designed it in six days and rested on the seventh And I promise you, it wasn't because he was tired. He has a plan, and he has a plan for you. And despite what thing may have hold of you right now, an addiction, a struggle, whatever, never, ever think that God is not in the business of possibly using you to be remarkable despite it. Fix your hope on him. Heavenly Father, thank you for this challenge. Thank you for this word. We need it, God. We need the truth. In this beautiful text, Peter writes with such love, church, we've got to set our minds. We've got to build our life around the focal point, Christ, because we have been called to be holy as he is holy. We've been called to be unique. Some people might laugh at it, mock it, think it's strange or think it's weird. But at the end of the day, may it not be because of our behavior, but because they, they don't like our focal point. So Lord, may we represent you well. May we not talk about those who don't know you. May we talk to those who know you. And so Lord, may we do nothing that prevents us from the opportunity of speaking hope 
into a life that might be headed for an inferno. Lord, give us the strength to share our testimony. And may sometimes we actually use our words. Amen.